Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hey, everyone. We have an awesome show for you today. I'm really excited because we're going to be talking a little bit more about death, one of my favorite topics. And I'm curious to know if any of you who are listening have actually thought about how you might be buried. How do you want your body to return back to the earth? And if you are someone who is environmentally conscious and you are trying to go more green in the world, this is going to be the show for you because we are going to be talking about the green burials. And who we have on our show today is the seventh generation mortician, Elizabeth Fournier, also nicknamed the Green Reaper, has written the guidebook we need for navigating the planning and executing of an affordable, environmentally friendly burial in her newly released book, The Green Burial. Burial Guidebook, Everything You Need to Plan an Affordable, Environmentally Friendly Burial. People Magazine recently said that Elizabeth is doing her part to change the way Americans bury their dead. And similar to how Caitlin Doty of Ask a Mortician fame helped break open the secrets of the funeral industry, Elizabeth takes things one step further, empowering everyone to make more environmentally friendly and cost-effective choices in burial and cremation. And I would like to bring her on to the show now. Hello, Elizabeth. You made me sound fantastic. I want to meet that person. Thank <laughs> <you>. <laughs> well, I love the fact, number one, that we're actually having this conversation because I think this conversation for many people is rare and not a lot of people probably even are thinking about how they're going to be buried unless they are feeling really comfortable with facing their own death and their mortality, or if maybe they've been diagnosed with a terminal illness and they know that that's approaching. But, um, this, this is, has been a wonderful book to read. So maybe you could bring our listeners through a little bit of who you are and, um, how you came into this field. Sure. Well, I'm a small town mortician. I'm actually the undertaker of Boring Organ, and I never get tired of saying that. I think it has such a vibrant ring, and it brings a smile to people's faces. And when you work in a mortuary, it's hard to make people smile. So that's a good thing I've got going there. Um, So I love to be available to people to help because it's not every day you get to talk to a mortician and ask them questions. How I got here was 28 years in the making. That's when I began in the funeral industry. That was my first job. I was a cemetery nightkeeper when I was in college. It was a hot, hot summer in Portland, Oregon, and I was living in a small, non-air-conditioned trailer at the edge of a big, beautiful cemetery on a rolling hill. And I still think, wow, that's amazing. At 22 years old, I even accepted that job and gave up all the fun I probably should have been having, but so thankful because it steered me into where I am now. (laughs) So I knew at a really young age, I wanted to be an undertaker. A lot of family deaths happened. I was raised pretty strictly in the Catholic church and the pomp and the circumstance was something I liked. I also really liked the nature 
my mother was a really big proponent of nature and she taught me a lot about Anne Frank and preserving the lives of little animals. So this all came hand in hand and turned me into this eco-mortician. I almost said eco-magician, eco-mortician <laughs> I am now. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. And, you know, when I just right in the beginning of the book, I guess, you know, it's not on my mind every day, although I feel very comfortable talking about death. And the more people that I'm interviewing personally about this, you know, I'm realizing more and more, okay, I have to get my wishes together. You know, I want to have all of this stuff figured out just in case if I go before some of my family members so they know what to do. But um, you had a stat early in the beginning of the book that says more than 50 million people pass away each year, which includes almost 3 million people in the United States. And so when you really think about that, 3 million people a year it's like, it's kind of mind blowing to think about, well, you know, what is happening with these bodies? Are people moving more towards cremation or, you know, thinking about the land and how much land that's taking up. And I know that you're going to go into a little bit more of, of how that can impact the environment. Um, but gosh, that's just a staggering number to really think about that. There's some, you know, 3 million decisions that have to be made each year on what's going to happen with uh, a dead body. Yeah, you're right. That is a lot of people, and we need to do something. We just can't take our people up to the woods or throw them off a cliff, or people sometimes say, oh, I don't want to make any impact at all and just drag me out and feed me to the wolves. Well, here in the States, we do hold human life and human remains accountable, and we do honor them, and there has to be some sort of a formal method of disposition and something regulated by states, and there's paperwork that follows the person. So every death, even if they have lots of family and there's going to be full-out, blown, standard, traditional funeral service and burial, or it's just going to be a simple cremation, there's still lots of paperwork, there's still lots of energy, and definitely, like you said, lots of decisions to be made. Yeah. And maybe we can take our listeners back in time. And I'd like you to um, educate us a little bit on how burials happened way back when. Just... Recent history dictates that we were really into natural burial. If you look back just 150 years ago, this was the way that we were burying our people, and not just here in the States, but many other countries were just finding that someone would pass away. They would have some quiet repose time for people to gather. They would be bathed put in some sort of a basic box, brought out to the backyard, to the churchyard, and then we would just have some moments of repose, a burial would happen, everybody would be involved, and then people would go back to their lives. And it was very simple, very practical, very affordable. What happened to make a really big change was there was a big advent which happened, and that was the Civil War. We had boys that were passing away and dying on battlefields, and these fields were all over the place. So they weren't contained in one small area. These were spread out through a different, couple different states and territories. So a lot of people wanted their loved ones, their young men, to come back. These were war They wanted to see them, hear them, and say goodbye. So these bodies needed to be boarded trains and brought back to their homes. So some medical professionals came along and decided that we need to preserve them. We need to do something with sort of chemical or uh, some, some, some 
preservatives, formaldehyde, we need to do something. So that's how embalming started. The first true embalming that was all the way through and really truly preserved somebody the best of the ability that was there at the time was President Abraham Lincoln. He was so revered, he was so loved, and he was actually put on a funeral train, brought all over the place. Once the train stopped, he was removed from the train, brought in case on the procession around to different places to lay in state because everybody wanted to view him to say their goodbyes. He passed away 1865, so again, the end of the civil war. So once this new technique showed up, some doctors thought, aha, this is a good money-making thing. There's only so much of us that are able to do this. So then education started. There was some schooling. There was some teaching, of course, because the boys that went to school. So the boys learned this process. The boys became the first undertakers. And then rather than having loved ones who laid and stayed at the house and were bathed and shrouded and visited at home until they left the home party, backyard, churchyard, funeral parlors began, and they decided to take the bodies out of the homes and rather just say, let us handle it all. We're going to go ahead and we're going to take the bodies through our care. So with that started the funeral industry. Then with that, we stopped burying people in our yards because the body was already across town at the we started having cemeteries that decided that they could have people spend money to have their loved one in a quarterly grave with a nice headstone. There came the cemetery industry. And that became very comfortable for Sort of let the ick factor go away, all of the pain, all the suffering. We can just sit and we can you know, go to church or sit and say our prayers and we can have the professionals take care of them. So that was really the big change that happened. Is no longer we're doing something as naturally and affordable and environmentally friendly. We were giving it to the big business, and then they progressed their business, which really sort of pressed the environment. Yeah, and and you know, in learning about that history, that was new to me as well. Um, and in your book, you kind of talks. You also talk about some of the myths about burying bodies, and I had always heard that you know it was a health hazard if we were to actually uh, bury a body that was not embalmed. Yeah, I think that's something that people have worried about. Back in the day, as when I say back in the day, I meant 150 years ago or more. There was a lot more health crises. We didn't have managed medicine. We also had a lot more accidents that would happen. And there was, of course, you have to remember things like scarlet fever and whooping cough and tuberculosis and all of these diseases that were taking people out that we hadn't had medicines or cures for, and people were dying at a rash. A plague would come through and just wipe everybody out. We also didn't have as much knowledge as we do now. So, again, with the embalming showing up, that was touted as the cure-all and something to preserve the body and make the body okay to touch and okay to see, where four generations prior, the lovely church ladies were coming to the house and they were bathing the person and cradling them and dressing them, and everybody was just fine and life went on. And we're starting to realize, again, that a human body is ultimately just a human body, Occasionally, there might be some sort of bloodborne pathogen, and you can always wear your protective gloves if that's concerning to you. But for the most part, you're just fine. 
Yeah. And also you had um, quoted some statistics in your book uh, by Mary Woodson, who was the foreign, the founding president of Green Springs Natural Cemetery. And that's in uh, New York, up near Ithaca. That's about three hours away from me. Um, but, you know, reading this, it just is like, wow, really making you think about the impact on the earth. And um, I wanted to just share that with our listeners. Um, so each year, a conventional funeral and burial practice in the United United States results in the use of 4.3 million gallons of embalming fluid, which contains formaldehyde, which is also known as a carcinogen, 1.6 million tons of concrete from burial vaults, and 20 million board feet of hardwood for caskets. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot to think about. And bless that Mary Woodson. She's a science writer and she was gathering facts and thought, you know, I need to get this out there. It's been misquoted a couple times and it's been put into graphics and all. But the neat thing about it that I appreciate is it's shocking to hear some of these things. So even if somebody gets it wrong and they don't have quite the right amount of steel that you can get to build how many Golden Gate bridges or how much embalming fluid can fill as many Olympic sized swimming pools, you're still getting the visual of it and the impact and the understanding that if you just simply have a loved one that's not embalmed and they're placed into a basic wood casket and they're buried without a concrete grave liner, you are not contributing one iota to any of those statistics. And that's pretty cool. Right. And I bet a lot of people don't even know that they have that as a choice. (laughs) Right. I think that's what we're finding out. I think that there's a lot more education going on. There are a lot of funeral directors who are thoughtful, conscientious people and are deciding that they want to write articles about what they see in the funeral industry and how they can help families save costs, save peace of mind, make it easier, build your own items. About 10 years ago, caskets came available at Walmart and Costco and big box stores. And that was this big revelation that you didn't have to pay the 400% markup at a funeral home. You could get these items from a large store and they would ship them to the funeral home. And guess what? That funeral home had to accept whatever outside casket showed up, either being made or being shipped from a manufacturer or the internet. As long as a couple small requirements, it had to have handles because the reality is you can't move (laughs) something like that very easily without handles. And then if you were going to bury this into a grave space or into a mausoleum, there are some dimensions it has to fit because ultimately, yes, it has to go into the correct space and not be huge because then you're buying a secondary space. So we are finding out that there are options Uh, from everything, from just saving money across the board to being as environmental as you like. And what I really love is there are states such as Washington and Oregon and actually about 40 other states that allow people to take care of their own loved one. You can act as your own funeral director. You don't actually even need to use a funeral home. And that is a pretty amazing fact to find out about. Yeah, I thought so, too. Um, Yeah, just amazing. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit more about cremation. 
Um, and you had mentioned too in the book that that is kind of more on the rise of people considering that, where back in, uh, I think it was 1980, only 10% of people in the United States would choose that. But now it looks like we're looking at a closer percentage um, in 2016 that about 49% of people will choose cremation versus 45% who choose the traditional burial. Yes, and here I am in Oregon, so on the West Coast, it's high 70s for California, Washington, Oregon, Alaska. We are more on the precipice of people who choose this. Why the 1980s, 1990s and all that made a little bit of an advent and a little bit of a change is the baby boomers were just slowly becoming the people to pass away. Well, now the baby boomers are the people who are making the conscious decisions of dispositions and how to take care of people. Um, Baby boomer, in case people aren't fully aware, that means somebody born between 1946 and 1964. And those are the people who are having parents pass away, also friends, and they're just at that community culture right now of this is something more on the forefront for them. So a lot of them and other people who are eco-conscious decided cremation would be a better choice because rather than having your full body buried in a full body burial space in a cemetery, a lot of people said, well, hey, if I'm cremated, that means you're either burying a very small urn, so it's going to be a small little square, or I'm not going to use a cemetery at all. I'm going to have my loved one in the box or the urn on the mantle or someplace in the home, or better yet, I'm going to go fully back to nature and I'm going to scatter myself and I'm going to be one with the wind and the breeze and the trees and the leaves and go back into the earth. So that was a better choice. Now, of course, with everything, we do more research, more time has gone on, just like when everybody was a smoker back in the 50s and 60s. Well, time goes on and people learn things and realize, hmm, maybe not the best idea. So we're finding out with cremation that there's some carbon footprint issues. There's some ecological damage, which is happening to be able to start up the machine to be 1800 degrees in order to have a full cremation. We need to use a lot of fuel to get there. And people use different sorts of fuel, albeit gas or butane or diesel or whatever the heck you want to do. But nonetheless, that's still the consumption of fuel, which is quite a bit if you're going to have that machine burn and heat up and cool down and do all those things for a couple hours because we cremate people one person at a time. We're also finding out that funeral directors always need to ask first if someone has a pacemaker or defibrillator or they're being treated with stratonium-181, which is a really advanced chemotherapy drug for people with bone cancer, because that is all complete radioactive material. If you cremate somebody and they have a pacemaker, well, it's pretty unsafe for the cremation operator. It can explode. There is a lot of radiation that can go out into the universe. So with those items, we try to remove some things and make that safer for the operator, the building, as well as the... the the world. But even with that, the ozone, what's happening is those lacquered caskets are getting burnt. We are getting people, you know, wearing whatever synthetic clothing they have. We're getting all of the wonderful fillings inside the mouth, all of the hardware in the body, all of the stuff is going out and the residue is out floating in the ozone and the open air. So that's not great. 
But the real basic part of that people don't think about is what goes up goes down. So all of that floating out there, something will happen, such as rain comes. And when it rains, everything in the air filters its way back down to the land. So all of that stuff is become food for chickens, for farm animals, for little fishes. Not only is it really unsafe and unsavory for them, but if we're eating these animals, we're getting that byproduct of that put back in our body too. So probably that circle of life isn't the most environmentally sound circle of life. Right. And I hadn't thought about that either. I, my personal choice probably would have been, um, I don't know, I'm still trying to figure this out, but I, um, you know, definitely was moving more towards uh, cremation, but did not give consideration to really the fuel that it takes. Like you were talking about, I always thought that ashes could be spread, but, you know, thanks to reading your book too, and, and understanding how that is not actually okay. And, um, you know, with, with all of those different things, like you're talking about that the body can go through. Um, I didn't even think about the chemotherapy and stuff like that. It's like, wow, you know, it, it totally gives you a different view about, about the choices that you're making. Absolutely. And, you know, it's ethical to spread ashes and it's legal in most places, but definitely I know what you're referring to. And it's the fact that the pH concentration is so high. And if you decide that, oh, I'm going to put these on top of my rose bushes, you're not really helping your rose bush grow. Also, people decide that they're going to plant some sort of a seed and commingle it with the soil and the ashes just for extra nutrients so that plant or those flowers will be your loved one. And that's a truly, truly lovely idea, but there are better ways to do that. There are people who have different types of urns on the market and biodegradable products that help grow those. And what's really happening is there is a seed pod mixture and the ashes go in a separate area. So the seed is really going from the correct soil and the nutrients, which is important. And another piece, just to give a little bit out there too, for someone who is planning on doing that, because it really is a lovely tribute to your loved one, make sure you use a company such as the BioEarns for pets, which is based in Oregon, because they have a partnership with the Arbor Foundation, and they're going to get you a tree that's going to grow in your region. I think there's nothing as heartbreaking as someone deciding that they're going to have this wonderful tree, this root system for their loved one, and it doesn't grow and it dies. It's almost like a second death. That's what I, I hear from people. Yeah. Yeah. It's painful that you did this and then you feel like a failure because these ashes are in the ground and nothing came of it. And what you really wanted to see was this beautiful bush that reminded you of your father, but instead nothing. Yeah. Well, thanks for mentioning that too. And, um, what, what is that place in Oregon? Because we can go ahead and put that in the show notes as well. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, yeah, it's, it's the bio urn for pets and, um, it's pets and for humans and the wonderful thing about it is um, they, you know, animals and humans, by the way, are all cremated separately. Funeral homes who take care of humans don't take care of pets. So I wanted to make sure I made that clear. But a lot of people have decided they want to honor their pets the same way. They want to grow a little tree in the favorite place where the dog or the kitty played in the yard, which is so sweet. And something I loved about researching this book is finding out that people love 
people. They love their people. They love their pets. And everybody wants to provide the best choice possible. And so I'm glad to be able to present some of these methods to allow people to know, hey, there's other options. And actually, you're probably going to ask me about this, but there's a, another option for cremation, which is more eco-friendly that I would love to share. Yep, that was going to be my next question. So go for it. Okay, wonderful. I figured, I figured, yeah, you seem <laughs> very, very on it, but I just thought just in case it kind of goes hand in hand. Yeah. So what's happened is people still love the idea of cremation. Um, some people are very scared of the earth and how do I know that I'm um, not alive any longer and oh gosh, I feel weird. I don't want to be all of those uh, scare factors of why someone doesn't want to be in the ground and want that idea of being set free with cremation. So there's something new that has been around the medical world for a while, but now there are about 12 or 13 states. And I say 12 or 13 because, for instance, California has legalized the method of this water cremation I'm talking about. However, it's not going to be able to come out for a year or so down the road. So, And also some states go back and forth. They have this legal, they take it away. But what I'm talking about is a bio-cremation or a water cremation or an aqua-cremation. Water resumation is another word, alkaline hydrolysis. And the reason why I'm so vague on the name is there's different machines, there's different companies, and there isn't one across the board name. So it's all the same sort of thing. So if you hear about bio-cremation or eco-cremation, it's all the same process. And rather than having the high heat and the flame of the standard cremation, this is water. It's like a nice agitation, a lovely peaceful water bath. Your loved one is in a little bit of a basket. They go into the cylindrical steel tube and the water that washes over them doesn't have chemicals. It's some potassium chloride and some alkaline. And basically it goes back and forth. And while they're having a nice little bath, it's doing the same process that the heat is doing because ultimately you'll end up with just some bones. And they have shown after a standard cremation and you pulverize the bones and you have the cremated human remains, the cremated human remains from an aqua cremation looks pretty much the same. However, the bones will be a little bit more, or the cremains you get back, because you really don't get anything that resembles bones back when the family sees this, but it's more of a white color where cremains are a little bit darker, maybe a pinkish or a gray or a little bit darker. So what's happening is the water that's being used afterwards, it's being either given to pig farmers to go ahead and feed their herds, or it's going to go into the soil, but there aren't contaminants. It's all natural, and there hasn't been any hiccups of any issues. And they're finding out that this is an extremely environmental process for people who really want to still be cremated and have a small bit of themselves left in the form of human remains. Right. And I think you mentioned there is one in Colorado, right? Well, in Colorado, what or the open air is it yes. the open air cremation. Okay. So that's a third choice if someone's choosing cremation and that's open air. You get people who say, Hey, well, I live by a lake and can't I put my loved one out on a canoe and can't I, you know, have an arrow on fire and do the Viking funeral bit. And Kind of a neat idea. However, no, in all 50 United States, we do not see that as a legal form of disposition because, again, 
all states are governed by a mortuary board or a funeral bureau or a cemetery bureau. And we do follow rules because we do track people, their death certificates. But in Colorado, that is the one state where they have the Creststone Project in Creststone, Colorado. And that is an open air crematory. And it is absolutely fantastic. Now, it's very high altitude and they have to get a permit locally. So they really only can perform about one cremation a month. But it's a beautiful ceremony with natural boughs that are around the individual. A lot of times monks come out and chant, families very involved. And it's not a matter of having crematory workers take your person, load your person, light, and everybody stand there. It's very hands-on, very ceremonial. And people I know who have been have said this has just changed them greatly. So that's a pretty neat thing. Um, if you put that on your list as the method of disposition you want to choose, I just want to give you fair warning that they have decided that they are only going to accept local people because they were getting a wait list and many people were saying this is what I want to do and you know at one a month they really need to honor their local community which I truly understand yeah that makes sense too but um so the natural burial uh really started to gain more momentum in the 1990s you had um stated in your book and so can you bring us through that and how that started to change in the 90s yeah absolutely back in 1993 there was a cemetery, Ramsey Creek, in South Carolina, and that became the first natural cemetery. And what natural means is it was an undeveloped piece of land, and the good doctor, Billy Campbell, who lived in town, had decided after many years of being a naturopath that he, he really wanted to develop an area where people could just be put back in nature. They could have a simple grave and be in a shroud or be in a simple box or a, a willow basket, uh, cardboard, whatever some family wanted to use, and lay them into the earth and not have to worry about all the fuss and muss of having a grave liner and traditional headstones, but having this beautiful, walkable, environmental space. And the town said, what are you talking about? This is crazy. Animals are going to come in here. What are you doing? And he has admitted the only reason he was listened to was he was the small town physician. So, of mm -hmm. course, we've learned the man in the white coat sometimes. I had an elderly father and I could not get him to go to a female doctor. He was of the generation that the man in the white coat has the answers. So Dr. Campbell was willing and able to do this. And he found it to be very successful. It was called Ramsey Creek, and he had people come in, and it was a nature preserve. And it was a real conservative burial ground where it gave back to nature, and it gave back to the ecosystem, and it turned out to be flourishing. So many other places like this started little by little opening up throughout the United States. And then what's happened, which is pretty neat, is we have these things now that aren't fully natural cemeteries, but they're called hybrid cemeteries. And that means that any standard cemetery has the right and their own personal choice to either develop an area, half acre, acre, whatever they want, and make it a space for natural graves or a lot of cemeteries. And I'm really proud to say there's a few in the Portland area that allow 
their doors to be open to anybody who wants to have any sort of a natural grave and any space throughout the whole entire cemetery can have a natural grave. We have one cemetery here in Portland that has all of our pioneers that our bridges and our streets and our brewery and everything are named after. And it's kind of neat to see these really large headstones. And then next to it can be a space where it's just natural. And it's just somebody who did their their woven banana leaf basket or something. And so, you know, it really meshes the generations together. But also, it's just a nice idea of reclaiming nature and saying, okay, we already have this here. We're not going to revise history and say that we need to keep doing it. We're going to be a little progressive and say, you're right. This is a better choice for the environment. So while some people like the idea of the beautiful, bright green grass and the nice memorial park look, that everything is even. Others really love that sort of wobbly, wavy, gravy sort of indentation where the earth settles and there's natural flowers and how lovely. So we all can just give peace a chance and work together. Really love it. Yeah. And so what are the most important things to consider if somebody wants to move more towards a green burial? The three things are... Try not to choose an embalming for your loved one, if you can. Try not to choose a metal casket or a fine, hard, rare wood casket or some something lacquered with toxic glue and shellac and expensive hardware. The other is um, try to choose a cemetery where you don't have to put a grave liner or some sort of polypropylene box in the space. So I'll explain all of these so they make a little bit more sense. If you are going to choose any sort of a burial, albeit your yard, private property, a cemetery, a preserve, you have to have some sort of container in most of these places. Now, some say, oh, you can be nude in your grave, no problem. Others say, well, we at least want a sheet for modesty. Um, if you wanted to make some sort of a simple container. People sometimes take a sheet or a blanket off a bed. You've got to keep in mind that things like wool, silk, um, cotton, I mean, these things are fully biodegradable. So people have used a wonderful tapestry or they've gone to the fabric store and have made something and it's just merely something to sort of wrap around the body and be able to lower into a grave. With a wood casket, you can get a simple wood casket at a funeral home. You can get it online. Someone can make it. Um, there's all these wonderful items. If you take a look, if you just look up natural burial container, you will find things made out of hemp and bamboo. Um, just all these incredible containers out there that people had no idea existed. All graves say, sure, you can have a natural casket as long as it has handles and we can transport it from wherever the vehicle is to the grave space. So even if you are in a traditional cemetery that you have to have a grave liner, you still can go ahead and have this. And really quick to touch on the grave liner, this is something that people tend to not see. It's a concrete box or it's a steel box. It's something which is already placed in the grave space. And what this merely does is when the casket is in it, the lid goes on it, and when the grave is backfilled, the soil will not allow any of the earth to sink. So that's why when you go into a standard 
memorial park where you see all the flat markers and the beautiful green grass it's all one even length and that's because when heavy equipment rolls over or a lawnmower or some sort of backhoe nothing slowly sinks over time because all that soil is lifted up and held in place because the casket is truly has a really firm box around it so that's been the choice and that's been the standard for many many years and we're realizing well that's something in the ground that isn't going to biodegrade it's an extra space and really why is it necessary right i would agree um so i also want to talk about the dead body for people who might be like listening and saying oh my gosh but if i choose this and we're not embalming um you know my grandmother or whatever the case may be people may not know how the body naturally starts to decompose they might have fear about that so can you talk us through that Sure. And just so the listeners know, I'm not going to get very graphic. Reason why is I know that death is so hard. Um, the person who passed away is always loved by people. And I really refuse to talk about bodies like they're a corpse. This was a loved one. They had a purpose to be on the planet. So don't be uh, afraid of anything uh, really ghastly, I'm going to say here. Um, bodies decompose at a very unaccelerated rate. There are some factors that allow bodies to decompose quicker, and the main ones would be heat, um, or let's say somebody was um, who died outside in the woods, nature takes its way. But if someone passes away in a hospital or a nursing home or at home, they're just lying in bed. They're just looking like they're sleeping, and they can look like they're sleeping for a very long period of time. After a while, what happens is the fluids inside your body sort of want to come out. And that's why embalming was always invented. It wants to take all the fluids out and then replace them with formaldehyde and other preservatives to preserve the body. And for some people, that preservation is really, really, really important to make someone look as lifelike as possible. But we also are finding, and I say we as a collective, as general, as Americans, that when people pass away, you can always just, um, you know, dress them in the clothing that they would wear, comb their hair, use a nice warm washcloth, wipe their face, what have you. And you would be amazed that people still look very much as they did in passing. You know, they look like they're just sleeping and that can stay for quite a while. Um, we also... Ha don't have embalming as a real necessity. There's a few rules that say you do have to, such as if you are buried inside a mausoleum, just because there's a little bit of a buildup of pressure and mausoleums say just for the sake of keeping everything intact the way it needs to, that's important. If you're going to transport for a while, um, you can use dried ice, but embalming sometimes is helpful depending on the temperature, depending on the weather, depending on how far you're going. Again, there's air conditioning. There was ways to get around that, but I don't want to discourage people if they find that would be more comfortable for them not to be so hands-on. And then there are some rules if your body does go to a funeral home, then most funeral homes have a 24-hour rule. After 24 hours, the body does need to be refrigerated, embalmed, cremated or buried. And so in that case, a lot, if refrigeration isn't something that's going to be happening 
at the funeral home because the body isn't there yet or families just don't feel comfortable dealing with dried ice or having air conditioning or essential air or whatever they need, then sometimes embalming becomes the next choice. Also, one other thing here with visitation, you still can bring a loved one to a church. You still can go to a funeral home or a house and visit your loved one without having embalming take place. But again, it just depends on your comfort level and where some of the other contributing factors, but it's a personal choice for families and they have to understand that they have the right to make that choice. We have our rights to do everything we need to do and you just need to educate yourself and advocate for what you want. Right. And so if people want to consider this and to not um, embalm their family member, how much time do they actually have if if they do use the dry ice or if um, the body is refrigerated and brought to the home, if they are having like a home um, ceremony, how soon does that have to be done? Well, there is no exact rule. If you're going to take care of your loved one on your own and you belong to one of the states in the union that says that you can act as your own funeral director, then you have that right to make that judgment. Uh, Factors would be probably the weight of the individual. It probably would be what they were treated for and what their diagnosis was. And I don't mean so much by a contagious disease, but sometimes people are in the hospital and they are pumped so full of saline and chemicals and just the body is looking like it's deteriorating already. Also, sometimes people are found a couple days. So it just really depends on um, what you feel is happening. Bodies are going to do what they want to do. They have some time frames out there that says, okay, after this much of time, rigor mortis sets in and then it goes away. But I have found from dealing with so many bodies that people have kept at home. It's hard to say you have exactly four days for this to happen because there's been some bodies that have stayed really well for a longer period of time. And there has been other families that have said, gosh, you know, I feel like my loved one, there's some fluid happening and I'm getting uncomfortable here and the skin is kind of turning a funky color. And, you know, it depends. Sometimes it doesn't happen. It's just so Okay, great. And you also mentioned that there's three different categories of green burial grounds, um, hybrid, natural, and conservation. Yes, right. There is a wonderful agency called the Green Burial Council, and that's a nonprofit. They have a wonderful website, and not only do they have a list of providers, meaning funeral homes and products and cemeteries that really follow their philosophy and they feel that have really been regulated and are doing the right thing, but also they have so much education. There's been some wonderful people that have taken the time to write lots of uh, white paper and have lots of information. So the three levels are, the real basic would be a hybrid cemetery. And that means that it's a standard traditional cemetery that's been out there. And now grave spaces are becoming available that are open to a natural burial. And it's kind of intermixed or a separate area inside that hybrid model. A natural cemetery is one where they really only want natural caskets, No embalming, no liners, everything all the way across the board in the cemetery. They want really as green as possible from the clothing the individual is wearing to 
you know, making sure there's no screws or nails or metal inside any of the casket. We're using non-toxic glue. We're using dowels, things like that. And the conservation burial ground, everything is done to a level to make sure that the biosphere is really getting everything it needs, such as all burials are done at about four feet. So that way the body is getting into that um, ecosphere of all of the fungi and all the nutrients to break everything down as quick as possible to give back to the soil. We found if you bury six feet or eight feet, you're really kind of low in that stratosphere that ultimately you will decompose, but that doesn't really happen. All the action is a little bit higher up, and that's where we really want our loved one to be so they can go back to being a tree or being part of the universe. And we just want to make sure that, especially with the conservation ground, that everything is really done in a way that every little bit of the process gives back to nature. We're not using a backhoe, we're hand digging the graves. And we're really being really um, specific on being as absolutely earth-centric as possible, trying to keep vehicles out. There's a lot of nature paths. I'm bringing carts, hand-drawn to bring people in. Just, you know, really, again, if you think about, you know, um, small, medium, large, or there's real, just there's some real definitions there of what's going on. Right. Thank you. And also another reason for our listeners to go out and purchase this book, um, you also have a list of the green burial grounds in the United States and Canada um, in your book as well, which will be helpful for the reader. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I thought that was important to have that. Occasionally, you know, new ones come about which is really wonderfully important to know. Um, but also I have a really in-depth index in the back of the book. So you can pinpoint exactly what you're looking for and go to that. Sometimes people have their loved one at home and they realize, okay, um, I need to know how to bathe them. So you can go and you can find that and go right to it. And it can really be as a handbook and guide you through it. You can crumple the, the, the pages over with your little earmarks and really just do the things you need to do specifically to the path you've chosen for yourself. Right. And the other thing that I learned too, was that you can request, um, to actually have your loved one buried on your own land. There's a process for that. Yeah. It depends on where you live. And that's why I always say to people, as much as I like to be natural and I like to be alternative, I also like people to follow the law. So if you are thinking at all, that you have an acre or more of land and that you own the land and this is something that you would really like to do, I would check with your local county planning and zoning, run your address by them and ask the question. Now, when I first started burying people in their yards here where I am, I'm in Clackamas County in Oregon and I'm in rural Clackamas County. I first called them and asked them and I got sent around to so many different departments because no one had an answer for me. There ultimately wasn't anything on the books. Mm. So pretty much I got someone who said, well, I guess so. <laughs> and we went with that. So I find if you want to do this in your yard, advocate for yourself, ask the questions, find out what you need to do, find out why. The more people who keep calling, the more rules get changed. Just like small cemeteries. If you know a cemetery in your area that doesn't have a lot of burials. A pioneer cemetery, a really old, old cemetery that looks sort of neglected. There's probably a board of directors that runs it. And if you ask 
and want to be buried and don't want a grave liner, they might just say, I guess so, because they don't have interments and burials coming in anyways. Or the board might say, oh, someone finally asked something. I guess we'll change our rules. Rules change. Things progress. Things happen. And that's why we've been able to have cemeteries that are established in the city of Portland allow green burial amongst pioneers of our huge cemeteries, just because people have asked the question. Right. And another um, option that some people may not be aware that there's also burials at sea. All 50 states allow burials at sea. And if you ask your local funeral home, I bet donuts to dollars, most of them are going to say, oh, uh, well, no, uh, you know, we don't do that or it's not on our general price list or I don't know. And that's a common answer. There is um, a couple companies in the United States who can walk you through this, can give you all the parameters. If you Google burial at sea, they will come up. And then you can work with them with your funeral home to help you do this. You just need paperwork from the county or the health department or the township or however it works out in your state. And then you just need to be three miles off the coast and they can get the, the boat to get you out there and then you can be buried. Now, this isn't a full military burial like we see on TV. This would just be you in some sort of a, oh, some sort of a pouch that they have, which has some um, willingness to sink to the bottom quickly or a basic, basic pine box with some holes in it, again, to allow you to sink. And the point of this is for you to be one with the ocean, for you to make it to the ocean floor as quick as possible, and then for you to rehabitat the area and give back of yourself to the beautiful ocean that's given to you all these years. Wow. And is there, I, I would assume that there's records of these. Do you have any idea of the number of how many people have actually been buried at sea? You know, I don't. And that would be any individual funeral home would have a record of that. Um, and I've helped one family. And it's just been a matter of I've had a company that does this because, again, most funeral homes, funeral directors don't have training. They don't have their own boat. Um, you know, they need mm -hmm. some, some sort of captain who does this. And so there are methods. People have talked about being shot out in space. Again, the Viking funeral. Promessa is something which happens in Sweden where the person is freeze-dried in the liquid nitrogen. They're sort of broken up in little pieces and they can go in the garden. We have these wonderful pods that are in Italy that a couple is looking at burying and making rather than a burial ground, but a burial forest. There are so many amazing concepts going on. And little by little, if there's enough support, enough attention, enough interest, these will all come to fruition. I mean, how did water cremation all of a sudden become something that 12 states are saying, yes, let's do it. More states are coming on board. It's just because people asked and they received. Right. Well, and also kind of speaking about the states, too, um, where do I have this in my notes? Um, ten of ten states as of 2017 require funeral directors for the green burial. So there, you you talk a lot about kind of like the legalities and things of this sort of like people just being educated on, well, does my state do this? Or, you know, what is what are the rules for my state? So that's important for people to look up to. But yeah, um, list them off if you, people just are curious at the moment. If you're in Connecticut, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, Michigan, Nebraska, New Jersey, New York, 
you're probably looking at having to use a funeral home for at least some aspect, not everything. You can provide your own transportation. You can make your own casket, but you legally need a funeral director to fill out the paperwork, submit it to the county, get the doctor to sign a death certificate, those sort of things. Yeah. And why did they um, require that? Is it something, are they just trying to find some more structure around that, helping the families? Or is it kind of like the funeral directors kind of lobbying to still have participation in this process so they're not out of jobs themselves? Probably all of the above. I think that, um, again, in those states, as more and more home funerals happen, and more and more people decide to take back their own rights, that those states will allow people to do so. Okay. And how about moving towards the future? Um, You kind of talk about four techniques that could define the green burials for the future of tomorrow. Um, And you had some, some neat ideas up there. I was laughing about the one where you talked about upright or vertical burials. <laughs> yeah, that's in Australia. I mean, how cool is that? You just have an auger, dig a space. It's, you know, two foot by two foot, and you're basically in some sort of a burlap, and you're standing end to end. Rather than taking up the, the seven foot, eight foot space, laying horizontally, you're vertically. I mean, that's kind of neat. That might be upsetting for some people, but boy, think about how much space you're not taking up. Right. Um, we have something now which we're st- in the state of Washington called Recompose, and a wonderful woman named Katrina Strait is starting to this idea of uh, having the system downtown Seattle, and you walk up the floors carrying the people in a shroud. You have this whole ceremonial inlaying idea where you put this person into these wood chips, and over time it accelerates and they break down. And this would be in the city limits. I mean, this is sort of like a a burial space, so to speak, but a uh, sustainable one and one that completely biodegrades. So there's a lot of think tankers. There's a lot of brain trust people who really are putting on their thinking caps and saying, let's save the environment. Let's save the green in people's wallets and let's do this thing. Yeah. Wow. I've learned so much in such a short period of time. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Great, great book, wealth of information. But now I'm a little overwhelmed and I feel like, oh my gosh, I have so much more to think about now, but it's great. I I mean, I just really never realized all of the different explorations of what we can do. And I just love the fact that we can really make better choices to help this environment and this beautiful, you know, Mother Earth that holds so much for us. And how do we give it back when we do pass and really honor kind of the circle of of life and death and life and death. So um, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. April, you said that beautifully, absolutely beautifully. We want to honor what we've been given and give back and honor ourselves and our loved ones in the meantime. Perfect. Yes. And let our listeners know where they can find you, your website. They have some more questions and would like to see what you have on there. Yeah, you can find me at thegreenreaper.org.org. I'm there. Also, my funeral home has the wealth of information, which is cornerstonefuneral.com. Also, pick up the phone and ring me. Call me up. I'm happy, happy, happy to answer questions for anybody who has anything. All right, Elizabeth. Well, thanks again for all of your knowledge. Uh, Great information. And again, the book, if you guys are uh, ready to just jump out there and order it, either um, can people order it online through Amazon or? Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of independent sources too. My website has a couple of them, thegreenreaper.org. 
Okay. And the book again is called The Green Burial Guidebook, Everything You Need to Plan an Affordable, Environmentally Friendly Burial by Elizabeth Fournier. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time!